the lab on site would clean and buff his sperm. <laughs> like I remember, like I was like white knuckling it because I was like, oh, that's so funny, I can't handle it. Because I have like a seventh grade boy sense of humor, so I was picturing like little oompa loompas, right, like cleaning <laughs> like each sperm. And I was like, this sounds kind of like a lot of crap. Like, I get the wand, but your sperm go to the spa? (laughs) Sucks for you. Sucks for you, you know? (laughs) Family building is supposed to be easy, and it can be a shock when it's not. The roller coaster ride of infertility can be a mix of emotions and conflicting advice along the way. As a reproductive endocrinologist and former fertility patient, I not only help patients build families every day, but I remember what the ride was like for me. Hang on tight as we learn together from experts and share stories from infertility warriors with compassion. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Shaheen, and this is Baby or Bust. We have all heard laughter is the best medicine, but is that really true when it comes to fertility testing, treatment, and that entire journey? Coping with the highs and lows of family building is tough, and I've told my patients, and I felt myself going through my own journey, infertility is no joke, but sometimes you just need to laugh. I am so excited to have Karen Jeffries here today. She is the creator of the wildly popular, hilariously infertile social media, mainly Instagram, but all over the place, and the book of the same name. Karen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How did you get yourself through your own fertility journey? Were you laughing the entire time? Oh my goodness. People ask that a lot. They'll be like, you know, is infertility funny? And I always think that they think they're going to catch me on that day that I'm like, yeah, it's a riot. (laughs) No, (laughs) infertility is not funny. When I was going through it, there were a lot of ups and downs as there are with all people going through infertility. But it was not all like laughter, but the parts that we could laugh at, we just tried to laugh at because there are so many like ridiculous, like, I can't believe that I'm doing this right now moments and it's all about the reproductive system and it's just like it is funny you know so (laughs) so there were times that I was just like this is hilarious but five days later I'd be like crying hysterically and then and then I'd be like okay let's go back and this is so ridiculous and so hilarious and then crying hysterically so it was a lot of it was a lot of that up and down well how did your journey start do you remember that first visit I remember it like it was this morning. So I have PCOS, which stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I had no idea that I had PCOS all my life. I had no clue. And my husband and I started trying to get pregnant. We were having unprotected sex. And month after month after month, I wasn't getting my period. But I also was getting negative pregnancy test results. Where I grew up in like sex ed in like seventh grade or whatever, like we were taught like when you have unprotected sex and you uh, don't get your period, like you're pregnant. And I was just like, what's happening? Like I'm not getting my period, but I'm also seeing negative pregnancy test results. So I was like, no, no joke. I thought I was pregnant for like six months and I wasn't. Like I knew I wasn't, but I was like, maybe I am. Like I had no idea what was going on. There's so many people like you, you know, we're taught to fear getting pregnant. It's just like, the end of that story or that narrative is that once you're ready, it's like so easy. I wish someone had told you like, hey, no, it's actually, you can't really get pregnant unless you're pretty much ovulating or having a regular period. And and you're like a 
educated woman. It's like, this is your reproductive stuff. How could we not know this? I thought that you could get pregnant like on day two of your cycle. Like I had literally, I had no idea. So after a number of months of trying on her own, we went to my regular OBGYN and she started me on a round of Clomid and nothing happened. So she's trying to get you to ovulate basically with these pills. I remember it was December of 2011 and it was like a Friday afternoon and my OBGYN calls me and leaves me a voicemail, which I remember being like, I don't think you're supposed to say all this on a voicemail, but she said, I believe that you have PCOS and you need to go to the fertility clinic down the street. And I had never heard what PCOS was. I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to call her right back. And she's like, and it's 445 and I'm out of the office for the rest of the weekend. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like a mic drop. And then enter Dr. Google for the entire weekend. Yeah, for the entire weekend. And Dr. Like Insanity, because I, you know, obviously got back to my apartment, Googled immediately. And the first thing I saw was infertile, infertility, trouble getting pregnant, unable to get pregnant. And I lost my mind. Like I was absolutely inconsolable. I called my husband. I was like, you have to get home immediately. He like didn't get home for like four hours later. I was like, come on. You have so many questions and I didn't have any of the answers. So my husband's definitely the calmer one of us. And so he was like, we'll just wait and see what they say, whatever. So I ended up getting an appointment with my clinic, which was NYU Fertility, and Dr. Lachardi, who you know. I remember meeting with him, and he did an ultrasound, and he confirmed the diagnosis of PCOS. He brought us into his office, and he explained to us our options, and we could either go forward with Clomid and intercourse like we had been doing, or IUI or IVF. I was totally trying to act like I was mentally stable with this situation, and I wasn't. And I was like, I can't go all the way to IVF because my husband's going to think I'm crazy. Well, even at that first visit, you don't even know what these acronyms stand for, I'm sure. You're just like, now you've got this whole lingo and like jargon, but IUI is like turkey baster, put the sperm in. IVF is like full-blown shots, egg retrieval. You know, So that's what you probably meant by like, oh my gosh, my husband's not going to go for that. Yeah. So I ended up going forward with IUI, and I remember when you said, do you remember that first visit? He explained to me that I needed to go to the clinic before work. I remember him saying the funny parts that he said at that visit, that first visit, and that's when we first started, like, he actually was not trying to be funny. But like the, when we walked away, I was like, oh, my gosh, that was so funny. Because he said, you know, when my blood and my ultrasound, my levels are looking to be the right levels and my follicles are looking to be the right, you know, size, that my husband would come in and give his donation, and that the lab on site would clean and buff his sperm. <laughs> and I remember those were the words that he used. I'm imagining sperm going through like a car wash. Like, yeah. what is that? That's like, awesome. I remember like, I was like white knuckling it because I was like, oh, that's so funny. I can't handle it. Because I have like a seventh grade boy sense of humor. So I was obviously like picturing like little Oompa Loompas, right? Like cleaning, <laughs> like each sperm. <laughs> And I was just like, oh my goodness. And I remember walking out of the clinic that day with my husband and I was like, this sounds kind of like a lot of crap. I get the wand, but your sperm go to the spa? Like what is <laughs> happening? And he was like, ah, I don't really know what to tell you. You know, like. <laughs> sucks for you. Sucks for you, you know. <laughs> I've like joked with him about that since. And then that first time, I'm sure you're just like, well, okay, we just got to do this once. Like this is just going to work, right? Because we're at the clinic and. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you start going through it and you and you go for your first IUI, like I had the HSG, which, you know, when they put the saline up and, and check to see 
see if there's any blockages, which was like my first HSG was horrific. Later on, years later, I had another one and I honestly didn't even know anything happened. So I was like, how can you have two totally different reactions to the same procedure? But like I had done everything right. Like you've done all the tests, your anatomy is okay, your fallopian tubes are open. You're like, Mm -hmm. okay, the only thing is we got to get that egg and sperm to meet and it's going to be so easy. Exactly. Yeah. And my first IUI cycle failed. And I remember I was so upset and I definitely went home and that was not one of the funnier moments. You know, like I went home and Gus got, I think I actually drank a bottle of wine to be totally honest, which is not, not recommended, but, and I just like (laughs) snuggled with my dog and cried myself to sleep. And then I remember the next morning driving to work and I was listening to like the local New York radio and (laughs) It was on the radio that, like, Snooki was pregnant from the, <laughs> the Jersey Shore. And I just remember being, like, oh, and this was, like, before she was rebranded as a totally competent mom. This was, like, the Snooki that literally was just dragged from a bar, like, two weeks earlier by her hair. Right? <laughs> and, like, Miranda is probably. Like, her rights were read to her. And I'm, like, yeah, that makes total sense. Like, of course she's pregnant. Like, I've devoted my entire life to children and teaching children. And I have dual language and general education master's degree. But, yes, please have Snooki from the Jersey Shore be pregnant. Because <laughs> that's how you feel. Like, you start feeling as though, like, everyone around you can get pregnant and you can't. Oh, absolutely. Just stand in the grocery store line and like every People magazine and Us Weekly is like mom glorifying. And you just also you just see pregnant bellies everywhere and you just assume that it was easy for them. Like you never know what someone went through, but you just assume you're the only one. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that 60 year old got pregnant. That makes total sense. <laughs> How did you kind of keep going? Were you able to laugh with your husband? Were you able to find friends that could chat with you through this? What kept you going? None of my family members and none of my close friends had been through infertility. So everyone around me was great and incredibly supportive, but like no one I knew had been through it. I had like a couple of coworkers that I was like kind of close with that I had been through it, but not like my go-to everyday people. So I felt really alone. Like I felt just very, very alone on an island and I was trying not to Google a lot and I was trying not to, you know, go down the rabbit hole and all that stuff, but it was really hard. And then the next month we went forward with another IUI and I actually had my IUI on the same day that my older sister who lives in Chicago went into preterm labor with my nephew. Like she was, she went into labor five weeks early and I was like, well, I have my IUI today. Like I would have just flown out there and she's like, okay, we'll go to your IUI. And then I was like, can I even fly after having an IUI? Because these are procedures that like, you're not really supposed to like run through O'Hare after, like, you know? (laughs) And I was like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like I have to go see my sister. Like this is, this is our first baby in the family, you know? So I went to my IUI and got on a plane and went straight to O'Hare, literally ran through the airport, which I was like, I hadn't run anywhere in like 10 (laughs) years. And I was like, I can't, I was like, this IUI definitely didn't work because I (laughs) ran through O'Hare, like, and I haven't run anywhere. I remember as the airplane was like pulling back from the terminal, this was like long before like you were actually allowed to have like Wi-Fi on the planes and everything. And so it was like all cell phones off and I'm literally on the phone with my brother-in-law and he's like telling me that like that my nephew was born and I'm like crying hysterically Aww. like like the really like really awful attractive type of crying where like you have boogers like everywhere, <laughs> you know? And like everyone was staring at me and I just remember being like, don't stare at me. Like... I just missed the birth of my nephew because I can't get pregnant and I ended up having an IUI. Like it was just like, 
So crazy. And what's even crazier about that story is that afterwards I was like, this IUI didn't work, didn't work, like whatever. And that's okay because I made the right choice. I was with my sister when, when she needed me and that's more important. And two weeks later, I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter. So my daughter, Zoe, was conceived, I guess, if you will, on my nephew's birthday. So they're almost exactly nine months apart. I love that. Some of your descriptions of IVF are just hilarious. I mean, the way you describe the waiting room situation and the clicks and how people interact in a waiting room, that's just priceless because it is so spot on. Yeah, I remember my first day of morning monitoring. And I remember my husband driving me up and waiting in the car so I didn't have to get parking. And and I was, like, excited. Like, I was like, I'm going to meet people, which sounds so weird because, like, why would you be excited about going to the fertility clinic? But I was like, I'm going to meet women who are going through what I'm going through. And I'm going to make friends with them. Like, I – and Jeff's like, don't be too – my husband's like, don't be too aggressive about them making friends with people, Karen. Like, you have to, like <laughs> – like lay off and I'm like no I'm gonna make friends with them and like all this stuff like we're gonna get coffee like I don't even drink coffee but like a really fantasy <laughs> we were like gonna go out and like get coffee and talk about being infertile yeah I'm gonna find my friends this I'm gonna get my squad it's like a yeah. cheerleading squad Let's I, was do like, it. I was like I'm gonna find like my fellow infertiles and lesbians so excited <laughs> like I was just like so pumped and I walked in there and I thought I was gonna be the first person there because it was like 704 right and they open at seven so I was like I'm gonna be the first person there like who else can be there this early and I get there and the whole waiting room is just packed not what I was expecting and I made zero friends because I learned very, very quickly that like you don't talk in the waiting room. <laughs> and I didn't know that because and I like was trying to be friendly and outgoing and make friends, right? So I sat down next to someone and she was like reading a people magazine and I looked over at her and I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a great article. Just wait till you get to the next page. And she was like, looked at me up and down and like scooted over a little bit. So she was further away. And I was like, wait, what happened? Like, why why can we be friends? I think you said in the book, it's like Fight Club. You don't talk about the fertility clinic. Yeah, first rule is you don't talk about the fertility clinic, just like Fight Club. Yeah, you just kind of want to get in, get out. That was definitely your first rodeo. Yeah, I would like smile at people and like try to make eye contact. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you don't smile. You don't even side smile. Like you can't even like do a side smile. Like it's so ironic to me almost in a way because the the waiting room of a fertility clinic is very similar to like a funeral home. God. You know, it is. It's but not that bad. It's Everyone so, out it's, there, it's not that bad. No, it's 100% that bad. It's 100% <laughs> that bad. Like, it, you just sit there and, like, with blinders on and you don't make eye contact and you don't do anything. And it's just, like, it's just so funny to me because I'm, like, it, you would think that, like, <laughs> that, like everyone's going to die. But we're all here to, like, try to create life. And, you know, so totally, I find it interesting. Sometimes I can pick up on people's humor a little bit and uh, – I'll throw down a little bit as a doctor. I've got a couple standard jokes. So for people that are like developing 20 follicles or more, I'll be like, oh, you're such an ovary achiever. <laughs> but up, up. And they're like, did you just say that? And I'm like, yes, that's so great. And then, and then they're like, oh, my God, like, you're so weird. Like, is a dad joke? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, those big fibroids, you'll do, they're just really frustrating. And sometimes we'll just name them. You know, we're just going to take the power away from those damn fibroids. And I'm like, there's Bertha. Yep, she's there. She's not affecting your fertility, but she's still there. And it's just take some of that power away. I remember when when we were doing the IUIs, 
my husband would always want to know what his sperm number was. And he was, like, obsessed with it. Like, I would, like, leave afterwards. And if I didn't call him and tell him <laughs> what his number was, he would, like, harass me and be like, what was the number? What was the number? And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I would joke about that with the nurses when they were like, so. Because they go through, like, your name and all this stuff and your husband's name. And then they, you know, tell you how many their sperm they're putting back in and how many they buffed down to or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'd be like, ooh, not that great today, Jeffrey. You know? <laughs> After my fourth failed IUI, I decided, and my husband supported me, that I wanted to go forward with IVF. What was so weird about going through fertility treatments the second time is that my husband kept being like, it's going to work early this this time. Like, it worked on the second time with Zoe. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be easy, right? And he's like, it's probably going to be the first round, whatever. And I just kept being like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I was like, I think I'm going to have to go forward with IVF. And he's like, I don't think so. When a woman says she has a feeling about something, <laughs> like, like you don't you don't mess with that. Right. And I was like, no. And like, I knew, like, I knew I was going to need IVF for some reason. I just had this feeling. So we went forward with IVF. So it was December of 2014. I had never given myself an injection before in my life. And I remember like at the IVF orientation class, I told everyone, like I told my friends and my family, like, oh, the IVF orientation class is all about the shots. It's going to teach us how to do the shots, how to inject the shots. I was like, we're going to practice on each other. Like, like what? No. Like more friends. Yay. (laughs) More friends. Uh, Basically, it was like a mani-pedi party, but with like injections. Like that's (laughs) what was going on in my head. And like, and I got there and just like none of that happened, right? Like it was more like about the the protocol. It was like about like the history of IVF, the legality of behind IVF, all the things we had to do, being told what our protocol, like what medication protocol we were going to be on. And I kept telling the nurse, I was like, I'm really nervous about the injections. I'm really nervous about the injections. Like I can't even like throw up. Like I hate throwing up. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> things like that. Like I'm just like, oh, I just don't like it. I was like 30 years old before I could do like a nose spray, like a, even just like a saline spray. Cause I was like, exit only, exit only. Like I couldn't do it. <laughs> And so I was like, I'm really nervous about these injections. I've never given myself an injection. And she kept being like, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Like she had all this faith in me. And I was like, you should not have any faith in me whatsoever. I remember the first day of the injections, like one of my friends was like, you should have a backup plan. And I was like, no, that's good. I actually, I really do. I really need a backup plan. And my backup plan was to, <laughs> was to walk down the block to this woman who I like vaguely remember meeting at like a drunken block party. I didn't even know her name. I do now, but at the time I didn't even know her name. I just knew which house she lived in and that she was a nurse. <laughs> Done. That is good enough for me. I was like, if I can't inject these, like this injection, this medication into my body, like I'm just going to go knock on people's houses in my neighborhood and be like, can you give an injection? Like I was going to like stop the UPS guy and be like, hi, <laughs> let's, make, let's be friends. <laughs> can you help me with a shot? I ended up being able to give myself the injection. I had this weird system where I would prep everything and watch the video like a million times, right? Of the, like on my phone of how to do it. And then I would dim the lights in my kitchen, which like at the time sounded totally normal. But like looking back on it, I'm like, that's not normal. Like, don't you want to have like all the lights on when you're giving yourself an injection? Like when you're working with needles, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, like we're going to dim the lights. Like what? That's not normal. Nope, you need some mood lighting. I get it. And, yeah, and I and I did it. And I remember running over to my husband who was in the, the living room. And I was like, I'm a nurse practitioner. <laughs> and he was like, no. 
no, you are not. And I was like, no, I totally am. Like, I just did this. I'm awesome. And he was like, do not go outside and tell people you're a nurse practitioner. Like, (laughs) Otherwise, you'll have some crazy lady down the street come and ask you to give her shots for her IVF cycle. (laughs) Anything memorable from the egg retrieval process for you? We, you know, we had a toddler at that point. Zoe was about two years, a little bit over two years old, and we had to bring her to daycare. But daycare, for some reason, like their power was out. And so when we showed up there, they're like, we can't take your kid. And I was like, no, <laughs> like <laughs> I, I have my egg retrieval surgery. Like we're like, it's, I remember seeing that you're not allowed to bring children, like to the, especially to the operating room level of the clinic. And they were like, well, we don't have power. Like we can't take your child. And I was like, I don't, it was a Monday morning at seven, like a clock on the dot. And I was like, oh my gosh. 7 a.m. is a bad time of day for you. It's a bad time, right? Nothing good. Nothing good. Um, And I just want to emphasize as a physician here that the timing of your egg retrieval is beyond crucial because you cannot be late. If you are late, you could actually ovulate and the whole cycle would be a bust. So your description of that morning is just terrifying on a whole different level for me. And so I got, we got to daycare and they were closed and there was nothing we could do. And so I was like, well, we have to leave her with someone. Who can we leave her with that Monday morning at 7 a.m.? And so I was like, it has to be my mom and dad. But my mom and dad live half an hour north of where we were. So we were going in the complete opposite direction of New York City. And my mom and dad, like, they're, they have never been, never are, like, the hands-on grandparents. <laughs> so leaving her with them was like, oh, like, like I'm going to go into the city to try to get pregnant with one baby and I'm going to lose my other one. Like, it was, like, so, so stressful. Just imagining you, like, driving down the street and, like, throwing your toddler out the window in the front yard just so that you can make it to the egg retrieval on time. But <laughs> Yeah, I pretty much did. I pretty much did. And, like, my <laughs> husband, he prefers to drive because he gets car sick. And I was like, I have to drive. Like, I have to drive. Because I was like, and he was like, okay, but I feel kind of um, emasculated when you drive. And I was like, I'm driving. <laughs> Let me use a deep voice. To tell you I was like, this is happening. I have to be in control of one thing. Because you feel like you're out of control. Like, your body's out of control. Like, your vagina's out of control. Like, everything's out of control. And so I'm like, I have to be in control of the car. I knew that, like, our marriage would never survive that drive. <laughs> and did you get there on time? You know what? We actually did. Like, we were able to make it back. Yeah, because of my driving. Of course. See? That's amazing. <laughs> You're amazing. You're my hero. We did. We got there on time and everything worked out. And I was obsessed about, like, being late. And so I was like, are we late? Are we late? Are we late? And I started getting, like, drugged up. And, like, the anesthesiologist was, like, putting me under. And I was, like, telling him the story about the power outage. And, like, <laughs> he doesn't care. Like, no one cares, you know. And I kept saying, like, I had these questions because we were going to go to Puerto Rico and, like, all this stuff. And everyone's like, oh. And that was the, the time that Dr. Lajardi, he came in and I already had some anesthesia in me, but I was still awake. And he comes in and, and I was like, doctor, I have two questions for you. <laughs> and no joke. And you'll find this funny because you know him. He goes, no, no, not now. Shh. And he put his hands out flat like a magician. He goes, shh, and no joke. That was the last thing I remember. Like, I was out. Wow. And, I was, and when I woke up, I was like, still have two questions. <laughs> he, like, tried so hard to shut me up, even with the anesthesia, and it didn't even work. <laughs> I had 33 eggs taken out, which I didn't know was a lot. 
being a school teacher because I had missed one day for like every IUI and I missed a day for my, you know, HSG with the saline and the tubes and I missed half of a day for my IVF orientation class. Like I had taken so many days and then for the egg retrieval, I was like, I have to go to work the next day. Do not have a choice. For some reason, I like hadn't discovered leggings yet. <laughs> like, like I had yoga pants at home and that was like, I had yoga pants, but like I hadn't discovered like you can wear leggings like to work and it's okay. Game changer. Yeah. It's a game changer. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. legging, it's 2014, like leggings existed. <laughs> they were a thing. They were out there. But you just didn't know about them yet. I, got I didn't know about them. No. Like, I was just like, oh my, so I'm like trying to like button myself into like gap, like dress pants or antler dress pants, whatever. And I remember walking and like just every step I took, it was just like, it reverberated pain throughout my entire body. And I was in so much pain. My stomach was out to here. And like when you te- when you're a school teacher, like your kids don't let you get away with anything, right? Like they're like, you have a booger, you have something in your teeth, like you have this, <laughs> like like you've you've one hair out of place, right? And like I got there, and they were like, oh, <laughs> they're like, is you you okay? Because I was my stomach was so big, and I was like, I'm having stomach problems. Like I just like <laughs> kept it at that. So like I think they thought that I was like had like food poisoning or something. Yeah, so if you have 33 eggs, I always say try not to go to work the next day if you can avoid it. (laughs) And then you have done such a good job of building this supportive, wonderful community. It's like you've built the lobby and the friends that you were looking for, but you built it online and you've kind of made this safe space for other people. Did you start posting to Hilariously Infertile while you were going through the process or was it later? After I had that round of IVF, I was pregnant with my second daughter, and she was born in 2015. I was on maternity leave with her, and I remember I was helping one of my girlfriends through her cycle, and I was helping another family member through her cycle, and my husband and I were doing dishes, and I said, you know, so-and-so is ovulating, so it's go time for them, and, you know, so-and-so's follicles are at 17 millimeters, so I told her she should probably get ready for her IUI on Sunday, like, stuff like that, and he was like, I think you should write a book. Mm. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And like, that was it. <laughs> like, I just laughed at his face and like walked away. Like, that was like the end of the conversation. And I was like, I don't even have time to like read books. Like, I don't read books. Like, how can I write a book? During nap time one day, I just opened up my laptop and I just started writing. And it came out of me so, so, so quickly. And I wrote Hilariously Infertile in about five weeks. But during this time, I wasn't on social media. So so to answer your question, no, like I wasn't posting while I was going through it. And then like the naive school teacher, I was like, I'm going to get it published. And like, I didn't realize <laughs> you pretty much need to like know someone in publishing to like get a book published, you know? One, I was talking to one of my husband's best friends and I was like, I just, like after I had gotten all these responses back from literary agents being like, we uh, it's, it's we just don't think it's a big enough market. Oh, just one in eight couples and, oh, seven million people did IVF last year. Yep, not a big enough market. Nope. Mm-mm. That, that's like all, yeah, this is like, like half of Manhattan did IVF. So <laughs> in my office where I'm sitting right now, I have two computer screens, like two monitors. I, re- I remember looking at that email and then pulling up like the CDC numbers And that's just for, like, people who have declared infertility, like, with their insurance. Like, that's not for people who are just trying on their own or don't have insurance, right, and all this stuff. And I was like, this isn't adding up. And those are just the United States. And I started looking worldwide. And I was like, this none of this is adding up. Like, this is a huge market. And that is really what has fueled my fire to this day is that people think it's not a big enough market. 
then that means that people are sitting at home and they're suffering in silence. And I just, I was like, well, I, I can't have that. Right. <laughs> and so I was on the phone with my, with my husband's friend and I was like, I just don't know what else to do. And he's like, well, what's your goal? And I was like, I just want to help people. Like I was alone when I was going through this. And when I started writing hilariously infertile, like as I started writing it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is funny. Like, it's actually funny. Like, it wasn't called Hilariously Infertile in the beginning. It was called, like, Let's Talk Fertility, which is a lame title. We could all agree. <laughs> then once I realized it was funny, and then I came up with Hilariously Infertile, and I was like, it's just, I just want to help people. I want to help people who are crying or who are sad and who feel alone and who are in between treatments, and they, like, are so bummed out. And if I could get them to, like, crack a smile or to laugh, like, then I was like, that's what I want to do. And he was like, okay, you need social media. And I was like, ew. No. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, no, I hate social media. I was like, I don't even have a personal Facebook. And he was like, well, get with it. Like you're going to need this if you want to help people. So, so that's what I did. And I had my step niece, my sister's um, stepdaughter help me a little bit because she was 19 years old at the time. And I was like, what's a hashtag? <laughs> and, and no joke. I remember I had like 30 followers or something like that. And then a week later I had a hundred and my husband was like, well, how did that happen? And I was like, I don't know. She just sprinkled teenage dust on it and it just happened. <laughs> And then I remember having like 300 followers and I was like, oh, and I still like, I still get goosebumps because I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm helping 300 people. That's insane. And every time that I look at the number, I'm like, oh my goodness, like I really am helping people. And then it just kind of blew up like a year later and I still hadn't published the book. So two years later, I published the book and everything else has been pretty much follower driven. So yeah, and then that's pretty much just how it's been. And I've just always been listening to the feedback of my followers and I, you know, reading their comments and their emails and their DMs and helping them through their day. And at the end of the day, that's to me what it's all about is just helping other people if they're having a hard time. I wish I had your account when I was going through infertility and I was sitting in the room with my feet up in the stirrups waiting for the doctor to come in. It's okay to laugh. And some of the things are just so ridiculous. And that some of the memes that you use are just like describing what it feels like to be invited to a baby shower when you just got your negative pregnancy test. And you want to cry inside, but the meme is like, you know, eye roll with like a silly dog or something. And you're just like, oh, thank God. Like, it's okay to laugh too. Infertility is not a club that anybody wants to join. But if you have to be in that lobby room or in that club, I'd like for you to be in there with me. And I just really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's I. That's kind of the goal is to have that network that I didn't have, you know, that I was so alone <laughs> and, and I didn't have any friends who were going through it. <laughs> Some people, like I, I know people who follow me and they haven't gone through infertility, like their best friend is going through infertility. So they follow me to try to better understand what their, what their friend or their sibling or their family member is going through, which I think is also like a great use for it. And I think that it just whether it's the lube, you know, from the ultrasound wand or the gushing of the progesterone suppositories or <laughs> like having to put like the estrogen pills up inside of you, like all this stuff. I think that's what people don't realize is like you feel like you're going through this alone and you feel like everything that you're feeling, even like when you're on the hormones and you don't really feel like you have control, like you feel like you're crazy alone. And it's like, no, no, we're all crazy together. And like <laughs> we can, you know, like we can all like I was that crazy. Like Clomid made me, because I was on Clomid for so many months with my second, like it made me binge eat. Like I would just eat everything inside. Like if it wasn't nailed down, I was eating it pretty much. <laughs> this is how I felt. Like I felt insane. And I know I can't be the only one who's feeling insane. So 
I'm going to talk about feeling insane. And that's kind of how I've always been with my, in my personality. Like if I walk into a room and like, I have a pimple, I'm gonna be like, I have a pimple. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna be the first person that like says it, you know, because then kind of like you said, like with the fibroids, when you name it or make fun of it, it kind of takes the power away from it. And so that's kind of how I've always coped with things. Like if I call it out and I'm the first one to call it out, then I own it. It doesn't own me. Not to say that it doesn't still suck. Like it does still suck, but like I'm the one who's like, this sucks. And it's not like I feel less of a victim. That's how I've kind of always been with a lot of things in my life. Infertility, even though when I was going through it, it you know, it was hard. There was still those times where I was just like, no, this sucks. Like, I'm going <laughs> to go do this right now. And and I was always very open about it. So, so yeah, so that's what I've tried to do for everyone else. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate all that you do. How can we find you? You can go to my website, which is www.hilariouslyinfertile.com. You can search me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter um, and just search Hilariously Infertile and, and you'll find me. And you can find my book anywhere where pretty much where books are sold. Thank you so much for being here today, Karen. I really enjoyed catching up with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here today. I hope you enjoyed that hilarious conversation with Karen Jeffries as much as I did. She does such a wonderful job of taking such a serious and painful and frustrating experience like infertility and pulling out those ridiculous moments and just laughs at them and names them and takes some of the power away from these tough times. By laughing and naming it, you're taking back some of the control over this frustrating situation. I am your host, Dr. Laura Shaheen, and this is Baby or Bust. If you like this episode, let us know. Give us a five-star review and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Baby or Bust is produced by Mark Ramsey, Jamie Solis, and Greg Moga. Executive produced by Paul Anderson, Nick Panella, and Andrew Greenwood for Workhouse Media. Baby or Bust is a Mark Ramsey Media production.